I next met with Dr. Robert Orlowski to chat about the huge number of ash papers on multiple myeloma. To begin, he commented on the so-called upfront study evaluating three bortezomib induction combinations in the non-transplant setting. The upfront study was a phase 3B trial, which was important because it targeted patients with newly diagnosed myeloma who were felt not to be eligible for stem cell transplantation. And the other reason that it was important is that it tried to do this study in a community-based setting. And in that way, the results are very applicable to folks that are practicing out in the community. This was not an academic center-based trial. And the goal was to try to determine which bortezomib-based combination up front, followed by bortezomib maintenance, was superior. And the three arms were bortezomib with dexamethasone, bortezomib with thalidomide and dexamethasone, and bortezomib with melphalan and prednisone. And again, all of those patients then were intended to go on to maintenance therapy. And maintenance here was weekly bortezomib at 1.6 milligrams per meter squared, given on four weeks in a row, followed by one week off. So it was a five-week schedule for maintenance with four out of five weeks given once weekly bortezomib at a higher dose. And the presentation at the American Society of Hematology was of the results after 300 patients had undergone the entire treatment cycle, meaning both induction as well as maintenance therapy. I think that there are two takeaways that I would describe from this particular abstract. First of all, in the randomization between bortezomib dexamethasone, bortezomib thalidomide and dexamethasone, and bortezomib melphalan and prednisone, the overall response rates and outcomes were roughly equivalent, as were the long-term outcomes like progression-free survival, but the major difference between them was that the bortezomib thalidomide and dexamethasone arm had much more toxicity. So I think the take-home from that perspective is that if you're considering a bortezomib-containing induction regimen for transplant-ineligible patients, you should use either bortezomib and dexamethasone or bortezomib with melphalan and prednisone and not use bortezomib with thalidomide and dexamethasone. The other take-home message from this paper was that bortezomib maintenance therapy given at 1.6 milligrams per meter squared once a week for four out of five weeks was tolerable and did improve the quality of responses that patients received. And that should be a setup for future trials that hopefully will validate bortezomib maintenance compared to either placebo or perhaps to other approaches to maintenance therapy. Let's talk about the evolution study, abstract 621, three and four drug combination regimens of bortezomib, dexamethasone, cyclophosphamide, and lenalidomide. So the phase two evolution study was an attempt to try to build on the bortezomib and dexamethasone backbone by adding additional drugs, up to three and four drug regimens, and the major focus was on bortezomib, dexamethasone, and lenalidomide, 
as well as bortezomib, dexamethasone, and cyclophosphamide. And the four-drug regimen that was studied was bortezomib with dexamethasone, lenalidomide, and cyclophosphamide. And basically, this was an attempt to try to find an equivalent to CHOP, which is used in non-Hodgkin lymphoma for future use in multiple myeloma. Also, all of these patients did get maintenance treatment with bortezomib at 1.3 milligrams per meter squared, which was given on day 1, 8, 15, and 22. And the findings here were somewhat similar to the previous study we discussed, which was the upfront trial, which did show that the response rates with these three and four drug combinations were all very robust. Responses were very rapid. When you added cyclophosphamide into the four-drug regimen, there was an increase in toxicity. And whether that increase in toxicity is made up for by a benefit in terms of long-term outcomes is still unclear because this was still a preliminary analysis. Certainly, it showed that it was feasible to add cyclophosphamide, but my take-home message from this was that still, it looks like bortezomib with lenalidomide and dexamethasone has the best overall response rate and the most modest side effect profile. Could you just sort of capsulize where we are right now in terms of options and the transplant and non-transplant setting for induction therapy? What are considered, you know, equivalent options and what's your preferred option? Well, I think for patients who are eligible for stem cell transplantation, if one likes to refer to the National Comprehensive Cancer Center network recommendations, and MD Anderson is part of the NCCN, the level one recommendations for induction therapy are for either bortezomib with dexamethasone or bortezomib with thalidomide and dexamethasone or bortezomib with doxorubicin and dexamethasone or lenalidomide with low-dose dexamethasone. And the level one recommendations are based on available data from large randomized phase three trials. What we at MD Anderson, as well as what folks at many other places are doing, is using bortezomib with lenalidomide and dexamethasone based on Paul Richardson's phase one and two study showing a virtually 100% response rate. The only reason that's not yet a category one recommendation by the NCCN is that we don't yet have phase three data available to support that, although there are phase three studies underway that are looking to validate that. And I think we all feel confident that they will be positive in support of the three drugs. What about that combination in the non-transplant setting? It's a very good question. There so far has not been a study using VRD focusing on patients that are not stem cell transplant candidates. Hopefully one will be organized. They may need to think about using a slightly different combination. The standard VRD for eligible transplant patients is bortezomib at 1.3 milligrams per meter squared on day 1, 4, 8, and 11, lenalidomide at 25 milligrams on days 1 to 14, 
and dexamethasone at 20 milligrams on the day of and the day after bortezomib, along with an aspirin as well as some valacyclovir for herpes zoster prophylaxis. One would suspect that perhaps older patients who have a higher likelihood to develop things like peripheral neuropathy, perhaps, or cytopenias, might need some dose adjustment of either the bortezomib or the lenalidomide or both up front, but that still has not yet been addressed in a phase one study. Let's talk about the IFM study looking actually at lenalidomide maintenance after transplant, after VRD that we just talked about. Well, one of the things that we have always tried to do in the post-transplant setting is to improve upon the outcomes. We know from a past study from the French myeloma group about the efficacy of thalidomide in the maintenance setting after stem cell transplantation, and that study did show that thalidomide improved both progression-free and overall survival but subgroup analysis showed that the benefits were restricted to people that did not have a CR or VGPR, people that did not have a high beta-2, and people who did not have a deletion of chromosome 13. So ultimately, the subgroup that benefited was rather restricted. Lenalidomide being a generally better tolerated and probably more potent drug would hopefully provide greater benefits. And we now have data about lenalidomide in the maintenance setting after transplant from two large phase three studies, one of which was from the French myeloma group. And they took patients who had been treated with a single stem cell transplant. All patients received two cycles of what they called consolidation with lenalidomide, which was basically lenalidomide at 25 milligrams a day for 21 out of 28 days for two months. No dexamethasone was used. And then they were randomized to receive either maintenance with placebo or maintenance with lenalidomide alone. And lenalidomide was used at a dose of 10 to 15 milligrams per day continuously with, depending on the tolerability, either the higher or the lower dose being used. And the bottom line on these data showed that lenalidomide had a dramatic benefit in terms of progression-free survival, which was improved from 24 months from the time of randomization with placebo up to 42 months from the time of randomization with lenalidomide, and if you look at the data from the time of diagnosis, there was a 34-month progression-free survival in the group that got placebo versus 52 months in the group that got lenalidomide. So basically, lenalidomide maintenance improved progression-free survival by a year and a half. Overall survival benefits are not yet being seen, but this is certainly not surprising because in some of these transplant studies, it can take time for the overall survival benefit to be seen, but it would be surprising if an 18-month progression-free survival did not translate into a better overall survival. I think the one area that there was some concern raised about lenalidomide in the maintenance setting both from this study 
and from the other randomized study, which was from the Cancer and Leukemia Group B and an intergroup effort here in the United States, was on the toxicity side. As one would expect, lenalidomide did give more cytopenias with both more anemia, thrombocytopenia, as well as some neutropenia. But there were a few cases on the Cancer and Leukemia Group B study of myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia in the arm that got lenalidomide and no cases in the arm that received placebo. And for the purposes of future studies, those data certainly need to be scrutinized to make sure that there are good reasons to explain those. For example, this could be completely due to the high-dose melphalan which was given to these patients in the context of stem cell transplant. Just to clarify, though, data from this trial had been presented, was it at ASCO before? Yeah, both of the IFM studies and the CALGB studies had been presented at ASCO. The CALGB trial was not presented at last year's American Society of Hematology with the actual time to progression and progression-free survival data because, unfortunately, those did not become available until after the meeting. What's the bottom line in terms of the impact that these two studies have had, this one in the CLGB, in terms of the way people approach maintenance, choice of it, use of it right now, and how it has impacted clinical trial development? I think from the perspective of impact on patients in the post-transplant setting, what I do for these patients is to sit down and have a discussion with them I present them with these two studies and show them the data that strongly support maintenance as a means of prolonging progression-free survival. And of course, with single-agent lenalidomide, the toxicity profile is substantially better than with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, where there can be concerns about thromboembolic complications. Arguing perhaps against doing maintenance is the fact that we don't yet have an overall survival benefit, and there is the potential, although this is still theoretical, that when patients do progress on lenalidomide maintenance, we don't yet know whether they will have lenalidomide-responsive disease if we then increase the lenalidomide back to full dose and add dexamethasone. That's still something that needs to be resolved. But I think certainly an 18-month benefit in progression-free survival, which is true for both of the studies, is difficult to argue against. And I do think that ultimately this will be the new standard of care. And probably future maintenance strategies for clinical trials would need to either compare themselves to lenalidomide or perhaps even add on to lenalidomide where the control arm would be lenalidomide maintenance and the experimental would be lenalidomide plus something else. Let's talk about another paper that got a lot of buzz, so to speak, Abstract 862 by Dr. Jakubiak, looking at, to me, it's almost like the new RVD. You still have the lenalidomide and dexamethasone, but instead of bortezomib, you have carfilzomib. What do we know about carfilzomib, and what did you think about this presentation? 
Uh, I think it's a good abstract to try to highlight. Carfilzomib is one of the second-generation proteasome inhibitors. It's a little bit different from bortezomib because while bortezomib binds the proteasome and is reversible, carfilzomib binds and is irreversible, meaning that you could get a longer-lasting proteasome inhibition, which therefore could result in greater benefits. And in the relapsed and relapsed refractory settings, one of the most important findings has been that this drug, carfilzomib, has a relatively low incidence of neuropathy overall and very few episodes of grade 3 or 4 neuropathy. And that's a good argument for trying to move it up front because if you could either preserve or even enhance the efficacy of a VRD-like regimen by using CRD while at the same time having fewer side effects like neuropathy, which in the long run can be quite debilitating to patients, I think that that would be a very positive outcome. So Andrzej Jakubowiak led this study through the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium. This was a phase 1-2 trial, and the data are still preliminary, so we don't have the final results. But what was reported is that after at least one cycle, the partial response rate or better was approximately 100%, showing roughly equivalent outcomes in terms of response to VRD, and the quality of the responses appeared to be quite good, and indeed it seemed that quality responses might be achieved sooner with CRD than was the case with VRD, although it's not really fair to compare separate phase one studies, and really a phase three trial would be needed to make sure of that. And as would be expected based on what we learned in the relapsed setting, CRD had a very low rate of neuropathy with no grade three or four events. And I think that would certainly make it attractive for studies in the future going head-to-head with VRD or other standards of care in the upfront setting. Is that type of phase three comparison going to be done? To my knowledge, that has not yet been proposed. This would probably be best done by a cooperative group, and it may be appropriate once the current studies that are comparing VRD to RD are completed, that perhaps this would be the next step forward. There were a couple other, or as you mentioned, a bunch of papers presented on Carfilzomib 985, 1938, The bottom line, though, is can you sort of provide an overall global perspective? I've been trying to figure out in my own mind, you know, you hear about stuff like this, you know, for example, NAB paclitaxel versus paclitaxel, you know, solid tumors is one less neurotoxic and they're not directly compared. What do you think about carfilzomib? Do you think that this apparent lessening of neurotoxicity is for real? I think that carfilzomib, from all of the data that we have seen, and at MD Anderson, our folks have been involved in, we actually, when I was still at the University of North Carolina, was involved in one of the phase ones of carfilzomib, and then after moving to MD Anderson, we've been involved in the phase twos, both the one for relapsed and the one for relapsed and refractory. 
as well as the Phase 1B, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone. And we're now going to be involved in the Phase 3, targeting relapsed patients, which is carfilzomib with lenalidomide and dex versus lenalidomide and dex. I think we have enough experience now to be able to say that this drug truly is less neurotoxic than is bortezomib. And I should say, just from a historical perspective, we did at UNC the first phase one of bortezomib targeting patients with hematologic malignancies. And at that time, we didn't really look specifically for peripheral neuropathy because that was an unanticipated toxicity of this class of drugs. So we didn't specifically ask patients questions about numbness, tingling, and pain. And it was only after we saw several patients with similar symptoms that concern about the side effect was raised. Now that we know this class of drugs can possibly cause this effect, we were much more careful in specifically asking the right questions for patients on the carfilzomib studies. So I do think that this is a real difference with a real decrease in neuropathy with carfilzomib. When is the thinking in terms of when this might be available? What would hopefully happen is that sometime in the first six months of this year, the data for carfilzomib in the relapsed and refractory setting would be filed with the Food and Drug Administration, and they would then have six months to review the data, and hopefully that would mean that by the end of this calendar year, 2011, carfilzomib would be approved and available for use out in the community as well as everywhere else. How do you approach using bortezomib and how might you approach the whole question of using a proteasome inhibitor if and when carfilzomib is available in a patient who already has a pre-existing neuropathy or risk for neuropathy, i.e. diabetes? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that both from this meeting of the American Society of Hematology as well as prior meetings, we know that bortezomib can be used in ways that reduce its ability to induce neuropathy. And there's a number of strategies. First of all, if you combine bortezomib with other drugs, you typically get less neuropathy. We saw this in the phase three study comparing bortezomib with pegylated liposomal doxorubicin versus bortezomib in relapsed and refractory patients. A second approach is to use it once per week, and there are a number of studies. These are not yet randomized, but I think we have enough data from a number of trials. For example, Antonio Palumbo with Gemema, they've done a number of studies where they've used both twice-a-week bortezomib and once-a-week bortezomib and shown that the response rate and response qualities are comparable but the rate of neuropathy is substantially decreased. And then a third approach, which is probably not yet available widely, but may soon be, would be to use bortezomib in a subcutaneous route. And one of the abstracts we were going to discuss was from the IFM French Myeloma Group study comparing intravenous bortezomib with subcutaneous bortezomib in relapsed patients. And this was an interesting trial because what they found is that the response rates and response qualities were roughly comparable. The overall survival was roughly comparable. 
the progression-free survival actually slightly favored the subcutaneous version. And very interestingly and unexpectedly, I would say, the patients who got the subcutaneous bortezomib had a much lower rate of grade 3 and 4 neuropathy as well as neuropathy overall. The grade 3-4 neuropathy decreased by more than 50%, and that would suggest that perhaps it's the maximal concentration of bortezomib achieved after dosing, which is important in neuropathy, because of course the IV injection gives you a much higher maximal concentration than does the subcutaneous administration. So those are ways that one can still use bortezomib and get much less neuropathy induced. With the carfilzomib study, I think most of our data are still in the relapsed and relapsed refractory setting. So if one is considering using bortezomib up front, I would certainly still use bortezomib as a proteasome inhibitor in that setting and think about some of the combinations we've talked about, like lenalidomide and DEX or cyclophosphamide with DEX. And then in the relapsed setting, I think one has to look at what the patient's prior benefit was and what their prior therapy was. Certainly, if the patient has significant residual neuropathy, one would think that perhaps that kind of patient should be targeted for a carfilzomib-containing combination once carfilzomib is approved, and maybe somebody with significant neuropathy should tend to avoid using bortezomib in the relapsed setting, although again, some of the approaches like subcutaneous dosing may be quite helpful in that regard. Am I correct in saying that responses, clinically significant responses, have been reported to carfilzomib in patients who are considered to be, quote, resistant to bortezomib? Well, in the studies that have been reported, particularly at this American Society of Hematology meeting, the overall response rate to carfilzomib was 24%. These were all patients who had to be refractory to their previous line of therapy. Previous bortezomib? No. If that previous line was bortezomib and they were truly bortezomib refractory, the response rate did go down and is a little bit lower than that 24% number and seems to be about 17 to 18%. But that still shows that there are patients who are bortezomib refractory who can respond to carfilzomib and as one would expect, we probably think that carfilzomib will be best used in combination, and so that 17-18% number can probably be improved further once we apply combinations. Let's bring in the other agent that is getting a lot of attention and probably will be right up there, I guess, in terms of maybe being available, hopefully in not too far future, which is pomalidomide. There were a couple abstracts we wanted you to comment on, 859 and 863, but maybe you can just take a step back and say what it is. Well, we have now two generations, if you will, of immunomodulatory drugs, which include thalidomide as well as lenalidomide, and those have certainly made a big impact for patients both in the upfront maintenance and relapsed settings. By the way, one abstract that you did not select to review, but I thought I would briefly mention, 
is a study from MD Anderson where we've taken the combination of lenalidomide with thalidomide and dexamethasone and in a phase 1-2 study, which is still somewhat early admittedly, but we're getting a 90 plus percent overall response rate including responses in patients who were previously lenalidomide refractory. And so it may be in the future that one option these patients may have is simply to go back in with lenalidomide and thalidomide in combination. And there actually is a rationale for doing that. We have a paper that shows that lenalidomide resistance is mediated by a pathway called Wnt-beta-catenin, and that pathway is actually suppressed by thalidomide. So there is a molecular rationale for why that combination could work. And the advantage of that is that this is something that folks can do now without the need for a new drug approval or a clinical trial. Wow, that was a really good one. But let's just hold on one second. When you first said that, I thought to myself, I was like using two aromatase inhibitors together or something. And you talked about the mechanism of resistance to lenalidomide. I'm not even sure I know what the mechanism of action is. What is the mechanism of action and why? I mean, I don't know. I would kind of thought that thalidomide and lenalidomide were similar except for toxicity. Well, that's a good point. And we truly still don't know all of the mechanisms of action of drugs like lenalidomide. But in general, the feeling is that there are three ways in which drugs in that class do work against myeloma. Mechanism number one is by a direct effect on myeloma cells to induce their death. And examples of that include their ability to upregulate P21, which causes cell cycle arrest and eventually apoptosis. Mechanism number two is by modifying the microenvironment so that, for example, stromal cells no longer make the cytokines that are helpful to myeloma cells to survive. And mechanism number three is by some kind of immune-stimulating effect so that the host's immune system is better able to fight off the myeloma. And in the studies that I mentioned looking at lenalidomide resistance mechanisms, we focused on the first of those, which was the way that myeloma cells become resistant to the pro-apoptotic or pro-cell death mechanisms of lenalidomide. And we took both myeloma cell lines as well as myeloma patient samples, challenged them with lenalidomide, induced resistance, and then looked at what was different about the resistant cells compared to the drug-naive cells. And we found that this pathway, Wnt-beta-catenin, was activated, whereas thalidomide has been published actually suppresses that pathway. So even though these drugs are related to each other and chemically quite similar, they are not identical. As you pointed out, the side effects are different, and it looks like there are also differences at the molecular level, which may mean that combinations of different immunomodulatory drugs may be quite relevant. This is getting to have almost a Talmudic feel to it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's keep going there. Let's bring in pomalidomide. So going on to pomalidomide, this is another so-called second generation, or if you will, a third generation immunomodulatory drug. And it has been shown in previous presentations, especially from the group at the Mayo Clinic, that pomalidomide with dexamethasone is very active in the relapsed setting and has a good response rate even in patients who were lenalidomide refractory. So there were a number of presentations at this year's ASH meeting from a number of different groups looking both at lenalidomide refractory and bortezomib refractory patients and looking at different ways of using pomalidomide, which included either pomalidomide alone, pomalidomide with low-dose dexamethasone, and also some of the studies looked at different pomalidomide dosing, both in terms of whether 2 milligrams or 4 milligrams were better, and different schedules. The two most common schedules that have been used include either pomalidomide continuously, sort of along the lines of the thalidomide history, or pomalidomide intermittently with a three-week-on, one-week-off schedule, sort of along the lines of lenalidomide. And the bottom line of all of these studies is that pomalidomide is quite active, both alone and with dexamethasone. It shows activity in patients who were previously refractory to bortezomib, previously refractory to lenalidomide, or previously refractory to both. And that's important because there are more and more of those patients, and without current new drugs, the drugs that we have available now don't work so well for those patients. So I think pomalidomide is an exciting drug. Again, as we mentioned earlier, the hope is that pomalidomide may be approved sometime this calendar year by the Food and Drug Administration based on the available data from a phase two study in the relapsed refractory setting. And ultimately, pomalidomide will probably be used in combination. For example, we have a study planned where we're going to take pomalidomide and carfilzomib, which are what look like right now our two best drugs for the setting of patients with relapse disease after prior bortezomib and lenalidomide, and we're going to put them together, and hopefully that will be a big winner for patients and physicians. Anyway, you could sort of give a gut gestalt in terms of the tolerability side effects profile of pomalidomide versus lenalidomide versus thalidomide. It's a good question, and the available data would suggest that pomalidomide is probably more like lenalidomide because there are some cytopenias that are seen, and also there are some risks for thromboembolic events, which are similar to both lenalidomide as well as thalidomide. So certainly when pomalidomide becomes available, it will need to be used in the context of some kind of thromboprophylaxis. I've got to ask you about abstract 989 using a drug that we're really talking a lot about in our lymphoma programs, which has been the mustine with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, a phase one study. Is there activity of bendamustine in myeloma? 
Bendamustine is active against myeloma. We actually have data from Europe in a randomized study from a couple of years ago, which I think are probably among the largest data sets in myeloma, which looked at upfront therapy with melphalan and prednisone for transplant-ineligible patients versus bendamustine and prednisone. And the group that received the bendamustine and prednisone had a better overall response rate and response quality and also more favorable long-term benefits. So far, bendamustine has not yet been accepted as an upfront option here in the United States, but there are a number of studies showing that bendamustine, either in combination with bortezomib-based regimens, which were I think, prominent at the previous ASH, as well as with lenalidomide-based regimens, and there were a couple of abstracts at this year's ASH on that, is a tolerable approach and one that can give you good benefit. And because bendamustine is approved in the United States for low-grade lymphoma, it is a drug that one can think of using in patients who need additional options. And I think the take-home message from this year's ASH is that you can combine it with lenalidomide and dexamethasone and get a tolerable and active regimen.